Kia orana, this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Elisha Foon. Coming up... There is a need for us to relook at our literacy and numeracy program. An education researcher is concerned over NCEA pass rates in the Cook Islands and Niue. Also, the final part of our look into the reopening of the Bogera gold mine in Papua New Guinea's Inga province. And later... Trying to give your kids a, a nice Christmas or something to unwrap or a meal. You know, to wake up to, it's just a nightmare for so many families. It's tough anyway. A Pacific community advocate is giving back to families doing it tough this Christmas. An education researcher says NCEA pass rates in the Cook Islands and Niue will fall through the floor if literacy and numeracy tests become compulsory in 2026. The New Zealand government is considering extending the 2026 deadline for the tests and allowing students to use other ways of proving they are literate and numerate. The decision has huge implications for the realm nations, where more than 80% of students failed one of the three tests in June. Caleb Fotheringham has more. When 240 Cook Island and Uwean students sat the new test this year, just 18% passed reading, 45% passed writing, and 23% passed numeracy. Michael Papatua, principal of Mangaya School in the Cook Island Southern Group, says the results were a clear indication students were not meeting the requirements to engage with NCEA. There is a need for us to relook at our literacy and numeracy program down in primary and up at junior secondary to ensure that students, when they come into NCA Level 1, they have acquired basic numeracy and literacy skills. The tests are due to become compulsory from 2026 and students will have to pass all three assessments before they can receive any NCEA certificate. But Education Minister Erica Stanford has told RNZ she is taking advice on whether to let students meet the requirement through other standards beyond 2026. New Zealand students have struggled with the test too, with failure rates as high as 44% in writing and maths in June. Education researcher Michael Johnston from the market-led think tank The New Zealand Initiative says it's important to certify literacy and numeracy, but a big drop in NCA achievement rates is not desirable. We need to look at an alternative way of approaching this for both the realm countries and New Zealand. What I would advocate would be establishing a standalone certificate of literacy and numeracy and not having it be a co-requisite for NCEA. Dr Johnson says there is a case for New Zealand putting a special effort into ensuring realm nation teachers are better equipped. It might be a matter of having a professional development specialist located in the Cook Islands travelling to those remote islands and maybe going on fairly extended assignment to help. Titakavaka College Principal Vayanuka says the poor results can be partially attributed to cultural and language barriers. He says students had difficulty interpreting the literacy questions. We are finding that some of our kids, the question is too hard for them to understand and to, you know, really solve it. Education Ministry Curriculum Centre General Manager Rob Mills says a two-year transitional period in 2024 and 2025 will give schools time to adjust to the new tests. He says during this transition, additional standards will be available in local languages to students living in Niue, Tukalau and the Cook Islands.
Now to part three of our series on the Bogera gold mine in Papua New Guinea's Inga province. It is due to open Friday, and this comes after a long squabble over the renewal of the mining lease. The multinationals involved and the PNG government have set up New Bogera Limited with the governments, both national and provincial, along with the landowners taking a majority shareholding. Over the past week, we've been hearing from Massey University human geographer Professor Glenn Banks, who's had a link with the mine going back 30 years. Don Wiseman asked him what he makes of the reopening. I think the first thing we should say is that it's a, a pretty impressive achievement that Barrick and the government have achieved to get to the point where they are. I mean, 12 months ago, I really didn't think they would even be at the point of, of saying we're going to reopen the mine before Christmas this year. So I think there's been a huge amount of effort, a huge amount of talk and negotiation carried out by the Mineral Resources Authority, by some of the, the key actors involved in the, the new structure for the new Pogra. So I've, I think that's kind of the first thing to say. It does leave some fairly big unanswered questions, though. The way in which some of the local concerns and and resolution of some of the local issues has been done has basically been to kick them down the road for a couple of years and hope that they're going to be able to negotiate these things over the next two years. So the compensation agreements, for example, the way in which the government got around the need to have compensation agreements in place before the issue of a a special mining lease was to pass a, a, a piece of legislation which basically said, look, the existing compensation agreements before the closure of the mine will allow those to continue in the interim while new compensation agreements are, are relocated. Without seeing the detail, I assume that that also applies to the relocation agreements that they have in place. But they haven't spelled out exactly how they're going to handle the issue of, of resettlement up there. And it, that's going to be, a, as I've found previously, a really vexed issue to try and come to terms with. There's other outstanding issues, some of the, the environmental issues, which have created pretty nasty local environments have not been specifically addressed as part of the, the reopening. My concern is that in the, the rush to get the mine opening here, and as I say, it's a, a real achievement that that's been achieved in the, the time frame that it has. My concern is that in that rush, there's been a, a number of the real significant long-standing issues at Pogra that have just been kicked down the road. And the hope is that they're going to try and resolve them in the next couple of years while the mine is kicking up and and getting back on on stream. The onus to have done all of this comes back to the national government, doesn't it? It's had more than three years after it engineered the non-signing of the lease back in 2019. And yet here we are now with the matters unresolved still. Yeah, that's very much the case. I I think the first 12 months of that three-year period was taken up largely through trying to figure out how they were going to come to an agreement with Barrick in terms of the ownership of the mine. And so, you know, for 12 months, it was at least 12 months, there was really no attention given to the the way in which some of these local issues could be dealt with. After that, certainly a lot of effort went into the nature of what the new arrangements would look like. And so, again, a lot of negotiation about the structure of the local 
51% interest. There's questions too around the way in which the local landowners are going to be represented in the, the new arrangements. So there's another 10% of equity in the mine, which is effectively being given to the local landowners or the local community. But the, the fine detail of that, I think, still needs to be hammered out. And that in itself could be highly contentious. So whether we're actually going to see real benefits being delivered locally through the equity holding, the increased equity holding, is not at all clear, given that we don't know exactly what the structure of that 10% landowner share is, is going to look like. Some of those other issues, it, it does appear from the outside that what's happened is that the government has decided to essentially throw a lot more money at Porgra and hope that that will make some of the issues go away. So the significant community development that Barrick has committed to in terms of funding on a on an annual basis, there's significant infrastructure money being committed to Porgra and Inga province. And my sense is that they're hoping that that's going to mollify a lot of the agitation at the local level about some of the ongoing unresolved issues up there. Whether that's actually the case will depend on the distribution of how those funds are actually used and employed, whether it brings real benefits to the bulk of the pilgrim population. There's concern too, in the last decade or so, there's been some real splits open up within the Pilgrim community. And some of the, the long-established leadership has been challenged by younger people coming through. There's some very good older leaders and there's some very good younger leaders up at Pilgrim. Getting them to see eye to eye and, and agree to work cooperatively on, on a lot of these issues is going to be really difficult. There's some really long-standing feuds and disputes between some of the groups up at Pilgrim. So getting them in agreement and working towards a, a common good is difficult at the best of times when you've got such a, a large community up there that is made up of people who are not necessarily of the, the original landowning community, but migrants from elsewhere. Issues of social control up there are, are really difficult when leaders aren't able to effectively either represent the whole community or have some form of traditional control over those communities. So exactly how that's all going to play out, I think, is one of the real questions that we're going to see over the next couple of years, if and when the mine does actually open. I've heard rumours already since the announcement that the opening date is the 22nd of December. I've heard rumours there's going to be significant landowner opposition to the opening itself. So that's not a really good start to the process. I do hope that it does open, but whether it does is probably a question that we won't really see until the day. A Pacific community advocate is giving back to families doing it tough this Christmas. David Letelli, also known as Brown Butterbean, says the festive season can be agonising for many across the Pacific region. He told Lydia Lewis that compounding issues make it especially hard for Pacific communities within Aotearoa, New Zealand. Anyone who was just surviving prior to COVID and then the floods and cyclone events are now drowning as the cost of living goes up. Um, it's just a nightmare, you know, it's literally. Um, and, you know, it's also people just stereotype people who need help from food banks, you know. Uh, but it's people that are, you know, sometimes working two, three jobs. So there's just no, there's no room anymore for life to happen. You know, I always think like, you know, a, bro a flat tire, a broken down car, or the kid's got to go doctors or something. 
that's enough to send some families over the edge, you know, where they need services like ours. Um, so, yes, yeah, it's, it's really tough out there for, for a lot of people. Is it a privilege to not have to think about whether or not you can afford a phone top-up? Or some people don't even have to think about things like that. People we're helping are thinking about what's, what's for the next meal. You know, looking at their children and their staff. You know, and, and, and then you, and you add on top of that Christmas. You know, like, um, you know, it's, it's just a nightmare for so many families. It's tough anyway. But then when you're trying to give your kids a, a nice Christmas or something to unwrap, you know, or, or, or a meal, you know, to wake up to. It's, um, yeah, it's really tough on a lot of families. Mental health is, you know, yeah, it's, it's not good. And in Aotearoa, there's a real spirit of giving throughout the year. Lots of people are involved with charities and people like yourselves, you've dedicated, you know, your life to helping people. Tell me about what you're doing and what others are doing in your community this year to help out. The way we live our lives, if you can help, you should. Um, you know, we're working this year, uh, this, well, as we have the last few years, with Middlemore Foundation to give uh, children from Kids First Hospital who are, you know, suffering from long-term illnesses or, or, or disabled. You know, and, and, and on top of that, living in poverty. So we try and give them, uh, you know, the best Christmas that, that we're able to with uh, an awesome Christmas hamper, you know, that they, that's enough for, a, you know, for a week of food plus presents and, you know, and just have a real fun day on the, on the time they come to pick everything up. So, you know, that's what we're doing as well as a lot of other groups that, you know, on the ground helping a lot of people. And for you, life hasn't been smooth sailing can you think back to a Christmas that for you was just awful? And if you're willing to share a snippet of it so that others don't feel so alone this Christmas. Well, I tend to block out all the bad memories, but I was <laughs> like, um, you know, Christmas for like for me, like as for a lot of families, like Chris, I mean, even now I don't, you know, Christmas is, I don't really like Christmas because I see, I see the, all the people that are without so, it's, um, I mean, there's no particular memory of in terms of a bad Christmas because as a kid, you don't think you're, you're trying to remember those things. But um, just not having stuff, that's, you know, not having the families. And it's not about me. There's families out there that they're, they're, not, they're waking up to no Christmas breakfast, lunch or dinner, no presents for their kids to unwrap. Um, and life's just miserable. And the positives, you know, you will also be a witness to smiling faces people who are so grateful to receive support as well yeah i mean that's the, that's why we do it when you when you see um you know when you see kids smiling and and the relief on parents faces you can't you can't buy that you know that's it's it's priceless seeing the relief on the family's faces um seeing the joy on the kids' faces, and you know, even was it last week we helped one of the one of the families, Nina Grace, uh, is the little girl. Their family um, car broke down, and she missed ten doctor's appointments because they just couldn't get there. So I went over to my friends at Trust Motors, and they gave her a car. You know, when when we surprised the family with that, you could see it in the mum's eyes, just just the relief, you know, and that's that's why we do it. For anyone listening, thinking, I want to get on board with this, I want to support and help, how can they get involved? How can they help? Who should they support and what can they give? Yeah, well, you know, so for us, you can go to Kids First Christmas and Kids is with a Z, kidsfirstchristmas.org. 
and donate. But, you know, look, look at – jump on Facebook and just search in your local community, local food banks or, you know, local community groups. And just go down and take down some food, um, some presents. That's what's needed at the moment, you know. And, you know, food that's not at the back of your pantry, you know, take down stuff that's good for a Christmas hamper. Um, and some gifts, you know, that, that'll go a long way for a lot of groups. That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, tofa soi for.